My name is Del Travis Maynard, I'm the Messiah. And for the last 3,200 3, years, Lucifer has been trying to find a way to destroy Israel. And um, believe it or not, he's made a lot of plans. And um, although you might think he's not that active because Israel is a nation, um, as you think of it, isn't really there. That's not what Lucifer thinks. Lucifer thinks that the current nation called Israel is not Israel at all. The devil looks at um, the land you call Israel, and he knows that one day God will raise the whole house of Israel from the dead. So even if you don't think it will happen, he knows it will happen. Now he's trying to prevent it by dissuading them, telling them that it will be you know really bad and they'll be sad and no fun in Israel. But that's because he knows the word of God, because he's read it over and over again, and some other ways he knows as well. So Lucifer's plans to uh, destroy Israel predominantly are because he doesn't want the prophecies to be fulfilled before the uh, what you call the end times, um, before the day of the Lord, because then Lucifer will be cast into hell. So he's trying to stop those prophecies from being fulfilled. I mean, that's pretty much like his motivation, predominantly, as far as I'm going to say right now. He has other motivations, but um, his plans include... Um, really, like with money, a couple different things. One is he wants the nation of Israel, spirits in heaven, to be persuaded to think like him wrongly about money because he knows they'll be raised from the dead soon and he expects them to retain all the words, like the knowledge and the memories of what he said. And um, he expects them to continue to believe it when they're in the earth. And so um, he's had an audience with them for about 3,200 years, depending on, you know, when they died and went to heaven. Because when they go to heaven, they live, they, you know, they, it's possible that they may just live forever and ever and never go to hell. Like Saul, he's in hell. I don't know if he ever went to heaven besides judgment. Now, another thing he wants to do in the earth, and this is part of his persuasion, is he wants to persuade Israel that to live in the modern world, they have to borrow money from foreign governments foreign banks and if Israel ever has money he wants to persuade them to invest it into foreign accounts that way Israel is never in possession of their own money as a nation or people now he wants Israel to take foreign loans and or foreign aid now this is Israel in the future after God raises the whole house of Israel from the dead according to the words of the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, where it also reads that David will again be their king. So he wants them to take this foreign aid and foreign loan funding um, like a national startup, because then he later wants to have those nations dictate to Israel what to do with the money and what to do as a nation in order to control the nation of Israel. So those two things are just not going to happen. Now, the other thing is he wants them to invest their money in foreign accounts. Predominantly, this is, I think, to tempt them to sin. Because um, investing in the stock market is like gambling.
Now, another thing he wants to do with their money is he wants to have them continue to print a money like what they have. And this is for several reasons. But one is Lucifer, he likes to brag about control even when he doesn't have it. And one way Lucifer brags about control is he, he'll point at their money, for instance. He might, this is what he might think to do. He, he's not going to do this in the future, but he might think to do this. He might say, see, they're printing the money ex in exactly the way I told them. It's modern currency. It's not the old way. Because what Lucifer wants to do is claim that there's progress in the world, but also that he chose things and controlled things that others do. So he wants to say they printed the money the way he said. He might want them to put strange symbols on it or keep the current symbols on the um, shekel. And so he might just say he wants them to put symbols on it because in the um, secret groups that Lucifer likes to talk to, he likes to pretend that there's secret knowledge that they have. And so one way he does that is, he, he, or at least the way one, way one way he hopes there to be secret knowledge, which is an empty promise. I'm going to just start over. He promises secret knowledge and there isn't any. And then he has... He hopes they have all these symbols, and he hopes that they think the symbols mean something. But Lucifer doesn't even know what the fuck they mean, like the chevron symbol, or uh, a lot of these other symbols, like the um, pyramid on the back of the dollar bill. In the uh, in the world, they want Lucifer wants to say that's the thing he chose, and that he wants to be you know on the top of the the pyramid. He wants to be the most high, and some shit like that. And Lucifer wants to be the light of the whole world. So Lucifer just says that shit. He wants to act like he's in control of everything. So he'll want to control the money, but we'll use old school money. Uh, we might do a slight change to make it difficult to forge it. Lucifer would probably try to make forgery of the money and then try to flood Israel with money in order to cause inflation. You know, that's something he might try to do, but he's kind of against it because in his mind, he might think they have more money because I don't think he even understands inflation. So that's just some general stuff about how Lucifer hopes to destroy Israel. And now he's been trying to persuade them that Lucifer knows more money, uh, information, and knowledge than other men or something. Because he, Lucifer actually is a man. Now, you don't have to believe this. I'm just telling you a little bit about, about it. So now, here, what are we going to do? Well, Israel's not going to take foreign loans, foreign aid. They're not going to do international financing of any kind. They're not going to finance anyone else. They're not going to be financed. They're not going to invest foreign, uh, invest their money into foreign accounts of any kind, not the stock market. And they're not going to accept... Uh, foreign investments. So even though there might be a bank of Israel, you know, that's a really clear bank, the main purpose of the bank will be twofold. One, besides printing money, obviously, uh, they might do it at the bank or someplace else, making sure that people get paid every day in case there's any weird situations that happen. But it won't be a place for storage accounts, hopefully. But maybe God wants that. I don't want that. I don't want bank accounts. I want people to be able to have their money at their house. It's their money. It belongs to them. And we'll talk about banking in a second. But another thing that they'll do with the um, banking is that um, the other thing the bank will do is um, when there's tourism in Israel, they'll be able to exchange, do like a money exchange. I don't really want to do this, but we'll have to for tourists so they can bring their foreign money and bring it in and we can exchange it for shekels, Israel money. And then um, later we'll take that foreign money probably to the foreign nation and just exchange it for something that's actually useful like gold or silver or something. But... Um, The reason why gold and silver is useful is because it can be used as an international exchange uh, currency for um, any purchase and for any um, exchange of currency. So for instance, if we get people from 15 nations or 50 nations or 150 nations or 175 nations that do tourism to Israel, eventually if we do money exchange, um, 
we exchange it for silver or gold. You know, for instance, let's say we want to buy um, laptops from China, uh, 100,000 laptops. They'll accept payment in gold probably at the laptop place. And if they don't, we can just exchange it back into yen. So it's acceptable for exchange or for purchase. But we would never take that gold and use it for um, building the temple because a lot of you probably don't understand this, but money in the world really isn't clean. So another reason I want to change the currency from the current currency to a fresh start currency is because it's not really clean what money does. The money, you don't see all things, but God does. And he never told me this, but this is just my expectation. The uh, money, when it exchanges hands, it can become filthy in my eyes. And that means it's probably very filthy in God's eyes. So for instance, if there's like $5, a $5 bill, and that was used as part of these purchases to purchase a hooker, to uh, buy um, methamphetamine or heroin, and then maybe, you know, they bought food with it, and then they went to a bank, and then a, a grandma withdrew money from the bank, and then a man punched her in the back of the head and took her purse and sold the $5. You know, pretty soon, you know, God knows all things. He knows where that $5 been, and he knows where it is. And so removing that $5 bill, you know, might make the earth a little bit less offensive to God. That's just my speculation. He's never told me that. So I'd like to remove all the old money and have a fresh start currency where there's no weird shit with the, uh, that happened with the money. So all the current shekels and whatever's in Israel will be burned or discarded, but it won't even be buried in Israel. It'll be completely removed. So all the things that offend in Israel, my hope is that they'll all be removed completely and entirely so that not one thing remains as offensive uh, to God. But I don't know what all of that is, so I'm going to remove things that are offensive to me. Now, that's kind of the political bullshit out of the way. Let's do the fun stuff. Um, when a man or a woman works, they, uh, they work and they expect to get paid a fair wage. And even though in the eyes of the world, some work might be considered to be lower work or higher work, H-I-G-H-E-R, what I'm talking about uh, isn't like the most low or the most high work you can do. What I'm talking about is if a man works all day, you might consider his work to be low or high. It doesn't matter. What matters to me is that he worked all day. And if he doesn't make enough money, for, he doesn't, if he's not paid enough money to, um, make sure his family has clothes and food and to make sure that they live in a house, then that's wrong. Plus, a lot of the things that men and women in the earth consider to be low work is stuff that's completely required for society to function. So for instance, men that dig holes are typically among the lowest paid, yet if there were no men that dug holes, societies we know it would probably completely collapse. There'd be no sewers, no septic systems, there'd be problems with wells and water. The hardest working professions are often considered the lowest and they're the most essential and required, and the highest professions in the eyes of the most vain and evil men in the world might be things like banking uh, and uh, the stock market, government, that kind of stuff. And that stuff is completely unnecessary. If there were no banks, no stock market, and no government, men and women could still grow food and build houses and have children and live very happy lives. So the things that are the most unnecessary are often also the most evil. And they can be completely removed from Israel. So there's a lot more happiness and joy. Now, in order for there to be no government, um, we don't have to do anything. Uh, 
I trust God regarding all of this. But also what's important is that it's exactly as God said. So you might say, well, the governments, the fathers of the 12 tribes or the leaders of the 12 tribes and also the chiefs and the elders and, uh, you know, men like that. And that makes sense. I mean, if that's how it ends up being, but I don't want to call that government. That's fathers of the 12 tribes, leaders of the 12 tribes, chiefs, uh, you know, leaders of the clans. That's, that's what I'll call it. I won't call it government because you're adding confusion to something. That's a, that's a word that we don't need. And the other thing is when there's no government, there can be no taxes. Now, ideally, I'd like there to be no taxes. And I have a lot of internet, excuse me, national projects planned in Israel. And one of them is called the Israel Data Hub. And so in each of the 12 tribes, I'd like there to be three data hubs. Um, but that gets a little tricky because there's going to be 15 land divisions. So that's like 15 times three, 45 data hubs. And so they'll need electricity and electronic components and, you know, maybe servers and stuff so they can inter like exchange data. But that's not that hard. I mean, like 45 servers isn't that hard. But they'll need to be paid for. So I, I can do it one way. I can do it just through like printing money and stuff. Or the other way would be to like do a very low amount of tax occasionally. And then I could just say who volunteers to, you know, give five shekels this year because that that would easily provide for it. So like if you're thinking about taxes, like five shekels one time in your lifetime for a tax project is like nothing for taxes. So I'm hoping to do a zero tax um, nation. And when David's king, then he'll be king under God. Our father is king above all kings. And so when it's a kingdom where it's like David is king, then maybe we'll call it kingdom. But in either case, I have a few other national development plans. And so in order to do those, I'll either do it by printing the money myself at the bank or making, having the money made and then paying the men to do these national development projects or um, through a voluntary taxation, but it'll be completely voluntary. So in other words, if somebody wants to live in Israel, they need to join the covenant and do things that are right in God's eyes and speak God's words. Nobody can go there and just deal meth or whatever. It's not going to work. And they probably won't want to be there and they won't feel welcome. Um, and honestly, uh, they can just be exiled. If someone refuses to leave, then it might be become violence. And that's not wrong. It's like trespassing. Like I'll give you an example. If you go into somebody's house and refuse to leave, like if you go in at night and they don't know who the fuck you are, they might tell you to leave and it might turn into a fight and then you might die. And the, that's not wrong. And like, if you go on someone's land and refuse to leave, they can, they can force you to leave. What you're doing is, is really wrong. And it might have to escalate for a while, but typically it does. If somebody's going to be a fucking invader, they, they're the one that will typically escalate it to violence rather quickly, violence unto death. And in Israel, it would be their death, hopefully every time. So foreigners that come in and hope to be like, a national agent of destruction to bring in methamphetamine or heroin, um, they can leave or they'll probably escalate it to violence unto their own death and then they'll be dead. And so they're not welcome in Israel. And if, you know, if we have to, we can get some strong men to drag them the fuck out of Israel, take them out of the fucking boundary and give them to the Muslims and say, here, here's a man that's just like you probably take him. That's a little bit of sarcasm, a little bit not, but I'm not sure. I don't know all things. So, um, when we're talking about the, uh, the taxation, it's a, it's a lifetime of living tax-free in Israel, zero taxes. That's, that's my ideal. And I think it can be done. Now, if there is taxation that's mandatory, and I think there never will be 
it will be a very easy and simple tax plan. The whole tax process would be this. How much money did you make? Are you married? Do you have children? And do you own a home? That's it. That would be the whole tax plan. And then after that, they can just do a quick math thing and then that would be the taxes. Now, hopefully there were no taxes in Israel. I'm hoping for zero taxation in Israel. And I think if I manage the, the economy well enough, there won't be inflation or uh, anything else. Because as people move there, I can slowly roll money into the economy and that'll match the um, growth rate of the nation. There can be a lot of money in the economy without causing any inflation. Um, so that's, that's one thing that I'm thinking. Now, some of the other national projects are related to the survey. I'd like it so once they survey the entire uh, nation of Israel, ideally what I'd like is the whole boundary to be marked clearly with like several different ways. So when they, when they first do the first pass, they might mark it with wooden sticks in the ground or rocks. And this might sound odd to you, but surveyors often do this. It's called a cairn. It's like three rocks stacked up on top of each other. It's not an altar. It's not blasphemy or heresy or anything weird like that. It's not a long lasting uh, monument unless nobody knocks it down. Then it might last a thousand years. Um, men that go hiking into the um, high mountains will tell you they often find cairns that men made a hundred or more years ago. And it's just like three rocks stacked. Okay, so then once they really have a very precise survey, I want to have them mark it with metal. And we might use common modern kind of survey marks. But then along the property line, I want them to plant trees. So I'm hoping that there will be tree farms where we can grow many kinds of trees, but Right now I'm thinking about two kinds. Um, the first kind is cedar. And every place that a cedar will grow, I want, it, I want the whole boundary of the whole nation of Israel to be planted with cedar trees. And I'm thinking about like 250 feet apart. Like they can be pretty far apart at first. Now Israel is a big nation and the boundary is gonna look different. But um, like different than it is today. But I think enormous boundary of trees makes it very clear and well-defined, but also beautiful national boundary. So there doesn't have to be uh, walls the whole way, hopefully, or things like that, because God's going to protect Israel. Um, and then in the desert, I want there to be... Um, another another tree there's a couple different uh trees that grow really well in the desert like i i think there's i've read on the internet because i don't know these trees that well um but these trees they grow in the desert really well they might make an excellent tree line so maybe we can get these other trees that grow really well in the desert and use them as a tree boundary and then hopefully um over time the, uh, we can plant more and more trees until they're like 50 feet apart. And that'll make an incredibly beautiful and clear and well-defined national boundary that's like not offensive to anyone. And so it'll be part of like a beautification of Israel kind of project. And then in between each of the 12 tribes, I also want there to be trees for a boundary. So you can see where it is from far away, but it's not a fence they can pass through it. So it's not like a wall because it's, you know, men and women in the nation of Israel. But also if we plant things like, let's say cedars every 250 feet, in between them, we could plant olive trees or fig trees or other foods, including uh, nut trees. And then when they travel back and forth between the tribes, there's also food. 
and they could just stop and eat. And that's really cool. I think a lot of people really enjoy that. But also, that'll also encourage inter, um, or you might say intra, depending on how you count, tribal like cooperation because one day they might decide to cut those trees down for wood and then they could plan to plant more trees along the boundary and keep the boundary so it's clear and well-defined. But also, they can have an agreement about who cuts down which trees. So there's no like stealing trees or cutting down too many trees. And I think that's really fair. And it's also quite interesting. So that's another project or list of projects. I want to have a soil farm, a tree farm, and then a, the survey team, that's another nas- national project. And part of the survey after it's done is marking it, hopefully by planting trees. Now the trees that are planted, they have to be big enough that a goat doesn't just walk by and eat them all one day. Because if they're only every 250 feet apart, some goats just come by randomly and start eating the trees and they might not ever grow big enough to um, make a nice tree line. Or then we have to keep replanting as they keep getting eaten and then the um, trees are like kind of uneven for a while and it might not look as nice. So I kind of like the visual symmetry of these larger trees so they have to grow in pots and then be transported and planted in pots. So if this can be done, it'll be really fucking cool. And so with money, Lucifer, like I said, hopes to try to cause problems in Israel, but I've already thought of everything. And so I want to have national projects for things like that, beautification of Israel, some roads. I want to have a road, you know, this is just like a hope. It's not even important, called like the straight road to to Jerusalem, one from the south and one from the north. And that's important because in Israel, three times per year, all the men in Israel have to go to the temple. And so, and they have to be like appear before God. So as they get closer and closer to Israel, the road needs to be wider and wider and wider. And I'd really like it, the temple will be south of Jerusalem. But I'd really like it if the road was like a convenient way for them to travel. So it's near enough to towns or cities in each tribe. So these men, if they need to, they could stop and get food or rest if they needed to um, someplace. But also um, they can also travel kind of together and return together, but it's not a traffic jam. Because that's going to be a huge fucking road. If you think about it, there's like seven tribes to the north, depending on how you count, and five to the south. And the reason I say depending on how you count is because Joseph will be two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Levi's two tribes. So by the time you get to the bottom, you're looking at um, seven plus two, nine land divisions. And that's a lot of people. So the road might be nine times as wide as it approaches the temple, as um, nine times wider than when the road started in the tribe of Dan, which is the northernmost tribe. So I'd like to have like a, a road plan, you know, kind of, be kind of interesting. But anyways, this is some of the national development stuff. Now, another thing is that there needs to be an inflow of money into the economy. And the reason I'm sharing all of this predominantly is transparency, but also because um, there might be a lot of challenges to my authority as Messiah and questions about what I do. And mostly it's going to be talking about things like this so that when we talk about the inflow of money into the economy, I want to start with zero money. And then when men and women come into Israel, I want to make sure they get paid every day that they work. And then there needs to be enough money to do that. So initially that'll come from the bank. and It'll be like um, printed. And the question is, when you start an economy from scratch, scratch, who do you give the money to? So for instance, if they all work for, let's say, a man who owns a field, 
and you're like, how does he own the field? Exactly. This is a big question. When God raises the whole house of Israel from the dead, who gets the land and how much do they get? I've been trying to talk to them about this and they can't even figure out how to come to agreement about um, who gets how much land. So I'm going to advise them about this. But also, when they get to Israel, I'll probably just give them each a, like a grip of money, like 1,500 shekels or 1,000 shekels or something for every adult. So if they're male, they get a thousand. If they're female, they get a thousand. Like this is the same across the board. And then maybe somebody starts hiring and then they hire labor and they start buying and selling. And then that's going to get tricky because he'll spend his thousand shekels quickly. So I got to make sure that there's enough money flowing in and then it goes into the right hands. And then it's not too much because otherwise they'll say, well, why'd you give this man 15,000 shekels and give me a thousand? And I, I can say, oh, well, he's a business owner and he's paying other men to work. And they'll say, well, that's not, that's not fair. That's unfair. And so I'll say, you know, I'm establishing businesses or something. So I'm not going to do it exactly like that. And so I'm making this podcast to talk about what I'm going to do. Because when Israel is rebuilt and the gods at the temple and the Messiah is there and the prophecies are being fulfilled, all eyes are going to be on Israel. And at that time, I probably won't even talk about this very much, hopefully. But if I do, I can say, oh, well, just go listen to my old podcast where I talked about a whole lot of it. And you might say, oh, well, that's like an hour. And I might say, well... You want to know about a national finance plan that lasts 6,147 years. And that is a long time. And so if you take an hour to figure it out, then maybe you'll know all the details. But if you're like, I don't want to know all the details. I just want to accuse you. Then I'll be like, I don't really care about that. I'll just probably laugh at you or something. Tell a joke. So, um, but that's part of the reason. So it's an answer to future questions. So you can find this podcast later. But also because a lot of men and women in the earth that are, um, whether they're Christians or Jews or anyone else, they might expect that when the Messiah comes, there's more peace in the earth in general. So if there's like a nation where there's a lot of corruption regarding money, I might say to that nation, listen to this podcast. Make sure that your people don't aren't embroiled in these um, corrupt financial agreements. Because if you are, and other nations are telling you what to do, they might be doing it exclusively so they can stop you from prospering. When they make these international trade agreements, often if it's a, a financial loan and a trade agreement and in, international financing and all these international debts, they'll also tell the, that foreign nation what to do with it. And then as part of the agreement, they might say, well, if you make a sweatshop, we'll buy from your sweatshop. And that might sound like an interesting deal to someone, but they'll also say, you can never, ever, ever make a business that makes your uh, country independent. And so these foreign countries, they become dependent on international loans and then they're never free. So they can listen to this podcast and learn how to start an economy from scratch. You do business startups. So the first thing you do if you're a foreign uh, nation and you're trying to figure out how to free your people is you break your international ties completely and you start from scratch. And you say, we can't repay what we owe, but we can't continue to live like this. And then they'll always renegotiate with you. They're interested in that. Negotiators like negotiating. Typically, they're mostly unemployed, but they get paid a lot of money. So it just makes them look busy and they probably enjoy it. And then the next thing you do is you figure out before you start the negotiations, you can keep talking about starting negotiations, but you don't start them. You just talk about starting the negotiations. You talk about starting them. Then what you do is you figure out all the um, things you need in your country to be independent. So what do you need? You need food, clothes, and houses and water predominantly 
So when you look at third world countries and you think, how are they a third world country? Probably the United States, the United Nations and Europe made them sign a contract saying they'll never ever produce enough food for their people in their own country or they'll never produce enough clothes or something. What they're doing when they make these contracts is they make it so these countries will never be able to have clothes, food, water, or a house. One of those four things. Those are the four things essential for happiness and joy in life. If you think about it, if men and women in, let's say, think of the poorest nation you know. If they all had houses, they all had food, they all had water, and they all had clothes, they have everything they need. They no longer need international financing. So what we do first typically is we, we want to make sure they're safe and all this other stuff. But when we're trying to change things from the way they are, we try to make sure there's an overabundance of food, an overabundance of water, an overabundance of work where they get fair pay, and an overabundance of natural resources so they can build houses. That's like trees or whatever. But then once they do this, a lot of men in power are like, yeah, but if, they have, if that happens, I'm going to lose all my power. Yes, because your nation is corrupt. But if you do this, then they might want you to stay, make everyone else go. The people might choose you if you stop doing the wrong thing. So make sure your people have access to all these things. Now, what they do in a lot of modern nations is they're trying to make them like other nations. Okay, honestly, they're trying to do this in the whole world, and it's not that simple. Modern nations are doing this a lot. They're trying to make it illegal to cut down trees so that no one can build houses. So if you think about it, what does an evil nation want? Control over food, water, houses, and clothing. And if you don't have any of those things, you're in destitute poverty. That's what it takes to make a third world nation. So in order to do that, if you have an overabundance of food, now there's an abundance of work. And if everyone's working for a fair pay, then they can afford to cut down, you know, afford to buy houses. Or if they know how to, they can cut down trees and build houses that last. In third world nations, they live in desperate poverty. So they're desperately like repairing their house often because they'll find a piece of garbage and then they'll nail it to their house with a nail they find on the ground. And then they use a hammer to straighten the nail and they use a rock to nail the hammer into the board. And they're using plastic or metal or wood, whatever they can find on the ground because it's illegal to go cut down a tree. So the nation makes it illegal to have a house. So you're thinking, what does this have to do with money? It's clear, isn't it? If these people have houses, food, water, and clothes, then if they have the freedom to start making things in their own nation, they start making the actual objects they use in that nation. Cups, spoons, bowls, forks, plates, knives, kitchen knives, um, hats, shoes, anything that they might actually buy in their nation, they can actually start making it. And then they start to have national independence. So you make sure your nation makes every object that they plan to buy. Now in Israel, I want to make sure they not only have all of that, but also the knowledge so the next generation can always learn to do it. And we'll do that through the Israel University, which will be free and the best university in the whole world by far, without a doubt. But also, and I'll talk about that after I do it, because that's everyone will just want to talk about it probably until you know they think it was not possible. And then after, they're like, oh, he did it. We'll talk about that after I do it. But um, also, once you have everything you need in that nation, then money isn't really an issue because there's plenty of things to do and people can go work and get paid and then come back to their house where they have food, clothes, and water. And then everything else is extra. 
And then you start to make sure they have all that extra stuff. First, everything they need, and then extra, other, extra stuff that's fun. And all of a sudden, you're like, why was it a third world nation in the first place? Corruption, wickedness, evil, greed. But there's another thing to consider, and this might sound odd to you. Sometimes a third world nation might be a place that's impoverished or poor because maybe, um, maybe it's just because of wickedness and evil. But it might also be because, like, what I mean is there might just be really bad men there. But also, honestly, it could be because all of those people, God's children, turned their back on God. So no matter what plan you have, it will never succeed if everyone in the nation turned their back on God. Never. And you might try to figure out how this is possible. And I'll tell you right now, I know exactly how it's possible in some ways, according to the mysteries of God, which I know a great deal about more than any man. But next to God, I know almost nothing. Okay? I know almost nothing compared to God. But he can do things that are so fucking amazing, you won't believe it. And without, without doing anything you can see, he can make an entire nation prosperous or poor easily. And if you all turn your back on him, you might find that a poor nation is poor for a reason. I'll give you an example. In a past life, I lived in the Inca Aztec Olmec area. And I was a man that went there and I taught them about a number of things. But one of the things I taught them because they worshiped the sun at that time is that God is like the sun, but he is not the sun. And when this happened, that whole nation, those three, it was almost like one nation, prospered in an incredibly cool way and God blessed them. They didn't turn their back on God. And what did I do? I talked to them about God, but also tools and food and like family and life. So what happened is God blessed them greatly. Well, immediately after I left, because I didn't go there to be a king or anything, I finished all that I chose to do. Immediately after I left, some wicked men came. I mean, at least one, but actually wicked men came. And they started doing false god worship, I guess, if you want to call it that. Human sacrifice. And um, God no longer blessed the nation. And so if you ever want to know what happened in South America to the Aztecs, the Olmecs, and the Incas, they kind of just left because of human sacrifice. When false god worship happens, good men and women left, uh, leave. So if you, I know a lot of you say there's no one good, but just think about the thing, men that are the closest to good or that are trying to be good. If you're a Christian and you think no one's good, because Jesus said it, just think about people that are trying to do what's right in God's eyes. Those that want to do what, things that are right and good and fair and just. They'll leave. Now, good moms know good probably better than anyone else. And I'll give you a clear example of it. When we're two years old or three years old, mom starts to tell us about good and bad, hopefully a lot. Food is good. Drinking bleach is bad. So we start to know what's good and bad right away from mom. Playing is, is good. Fighting or stabbing your um, another kid in the eye with a stick is bad. But playing is good. Stabbing him in the eye is bad. Having fun is good. Killing someone is bad. No hitting. It's sometimes bad. Sometimes it's not bad. So we start to have that understanding. So just remember what your mom told you. Maybe I'll think about good a little bit. But the point is, um, what you might call good men and good women, they'll just leave when there's false god worship. And you might say, well, is it because of the false god worship or the human sacrifice? What's the difference? Men and women that worship someone who isn't God, they're wicked as fuck. And they'll kill your children and try to get you to kill your children. I mean, they're fucking wicked. They always are. They're murderers, and they try to get you to kill your children. So as soon as I left, I mean, immediately 
after I left, they started uh, false god worship, and that's why the Aztecs and the Olmecs and the Incas kind of, like, you might say dispersed or something, but they just kind of left, like, walked away. And also, God didn't bless them. So in Israel, we're not going to worship false gods. And if someone does it, they're going to get a sword in their ribs with a legendary quickness, hopefully, that, like, immediately. It's just like murder. People that worship false gods are murderers, always. And um, in my experience, they're like among the worst of all men and the worst of all women. They might, they're rapists, they're murderers, they're child kidnappers, they're child murderers. They, uh, they do things that are very bad, not just killing someone, but the worst kind of murder. And I want to go into detail about it. So when you start to fulfill the law and remove all the false god worship from your nation, and I mean the real clear stuff first, people that w do human trafficking. So like if you're in South America or even in North America and you're like, you know, I want us to be blessed by God. You got to get rid of human trafficking. Slavery is a huge fucking problem. And so it's not just slavery because they're not forced to work generally. They're sex slaves and that's rape. And then it's murder after that. And you know it because their bodies are typically never found. That means there's these huge fucking bone piles somewhere where these human traffickers take the people. Uh, I heard a story, uh, somebody in a place called Redding, California, she showed the cops where they used to do human trafficking. They were doing it at the time. And she said, this is where they dumped the bones. And the cops went with her and they, they she showed them where the bones were. And the cops said, we're not even going to touch this. We don't want anything to do with it. They were so fucking horrified. See, that that's the problem. People are afraid. And you're thinking like, well, what else do they do? I almost guarantee they worship Satan right there. And so you see the problem. If you want a, your third world country to be blessed, you know, you can accept as many food shipments as you want. But ideally you need to get rid of the false god worship first. Like that's the first move. Get rid of false god worship, get rid of uh, the murderers, you know, put a sword in them, put them in a hole in the ground, I guess. Rapists, they can die. Child traffickers, human traffickers, they can die. Adulterers, they can die. Men that lie with men, they can die. And there's a lot after that. Do all that God has commanded. Deuteronomy 27, 28. Start with that. And so, a big financial plan might be the things that I said, but a lot of it is like just obeying God. He said, make no covenants with foreign nations. Well, that means no foreign agreements at all. And then with money, it's going to be exactly what God said, according to the uh, Bible, including written in the book of Ezekiel, where he says that the money, I think, will be just or fair or something. I don't remember exactly how he said it. And fair balance, just balances, I think is what he said. The point is, we'll do it all according to the word of God. But even if you don't know it, what you can do is what I need to do. You can go back and you can read the word of God. God makes it so, even though I, I've actually memorized the whole Bible, I think, um, more than once. He makes it so I have to go back and read it again. And the, the reason he does that is because a lot of his children, if they don't know it, they're too lazy to go read it again. Well, I can do what they can do. I can go back and read it again. You might say, that's weird. I've never heard of God doing that. Well, in the future, God will do things that you've never seen before. Not all of them are this weird. He'll do miracles and stuff. So how does God bless a nation? In the book of Deuteronomy, God details it in very clear detail, like what the blessings are. But we we don't know how he does the things that he does. I I can tell you it's according to the mysteries of God. And I know a fair amount about the mysteries. God can, in a single moment, make a thousand trees grow with food that's uh, ready to eat. And if all the food's eaten, he can make it grow instantly. He can make it grow in such a way you don't even see that it grew. 
And it's not even a deception. It's just a fucking amazing thing that he does that you might call a miracle. So here's what he says the blessings are. Blessed thou shalt, blessed shalt thou be in the city and blessed shalt thou be in the field. That looks like everywhere in Israel. It looks like every, he didn't say the desert or the sea, but like, it looks like he's just making this huge list. Like blessed when you go out, blessed when you come in, you know, just blessings everywhere. He blesses with food and there's other stuff as well. So he'll do a bunch of blessings. Now he says all these, he says, and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord, thy God. Now overtake is an interesting word. It sounds like he'll pile them over your fucking head. And God can do that. He can do all things. We might think, well, if it's going to be blessings, maybe what that means is he's going to like deliver food with foreign aid. No, he'll do amazing things that no one expects. He describes it like a field will yield more food or he'll, it will yield less. He decides how much food comes out of that field. No matter how much you work and plow and till, he can make it so if you had a thousand fields, you would only yield a cup. You could work all day harvesting it, and at the end of the harvest, it'd be nothing but a cup. Just a handful. I mean, he can make it that way. Or he can make a handful of, uh, of, uh, of uh, wheat be enough to provide bread for an entire nation for a thousand years. Or more. I mean, he can do anything. He can do all things. This is a better way to say it. Now, when we say anything, what we're typically thinking is like, oh, well, anything we can think of. But there's things that we can't think of because God can do all things. So I just say he can do all things. Like, what's on the list? All. And how can he do it in all ways? When can he do it? At all times. So that's a huge part of it. So when we talk about money and stuff, Lucifer has all these plans. And really, realistically, when it comes to food or money, God's in total control at all times of all of the money in the whole earth. And so when you're like, man, I want more money, I'm going to work harder. Yeah, you might work harder and get more money, but God can make it so that money fucking vaporizes. He can make it so your roof leaks 10 times in one year and all that extra money you worked for is spent on roof repairs. He can make you go completely fucking bankrupt and live on the street when you were a multimillionaire the day before or a week before or a year before or a month before. And he can take a, a bankrupt person and make them rich. He can do this in a day or a thousand years. He can do it any way that he wants. He's always in control. So ultimately, a lot of our plans don't matter much. So most important thing with money is that it's fair, it's just, it's not bad. There's no wicked corruption involved with it. There's no foreign entanglements. There's no one else involved. You know, one man works, that man gets paid, and it's his money now. That's the whole story. And if you think about women, when a man and woman get married, they share equally in their, each other's possessions. And it's not like 50-50 split, like she gets half and he gets half. Everything that he has is hers and everything that she has is his. And it isn't. If he wants to have his own tools, they're his tools. And if she wants to go use those tools, she can. And everyone knows that's fair and right and good. There's nothing wrong with that. And when he works, he can give the money to her or he can go spend it. Everyone knows there's nothing wrong with that. But what's wrong is when somebody selfishly takes when they're married. If the man selfishly takes all the money for himself and makes his wife go hungry and have no clothes, that's wrong. And if she takes all the money and makes her husband go hungry and have no clothes, that's wrong. So we know that we share equally when we're married. And so in these four nations where they're talking about 50-50 and splitting the money and that kind of stuff, that's not just. That's wrong. Now it's 100% wrong on both sides. Now she's trying to get her possessions and he's trying to get his and they're trying to be separated possessions. Now it's 100% wrong. But when they, ha when they have shared possessions, his and hers, everything, that makes sense.
And there's a couple more things that I should say about the money. So the predominant thing with the money I'm talking about is making sure Lucifer keeps his fucking hands out of it. Now, a lot of you are like, well, that's just for you because you think Lucifer's real. Well, I know he's real because I talk to that dumb motherfucker every day. But um, because I'm the Messiah and Lucifer's a huge fucking problem in uh, not only the earth, but also heaven where the spirits are and the heavens where the angels are. Lucifer's a huge fucking problem. But also with the money in your nation, Lucifer wants to get his hands on that as well. Now, he doesn't actually want to touch it because he's an angel and angels have everything they need. God gives angels everything they need. But if your money's all entangled up in these like bank accounts, foreign offshore accounts, and um, foreign investments, that means the people in the nation where you live have no access to it, and neither do you, and that means you can't buy things from other nations to be used in your nation for the people you have right now. See, you might be worried about money for the future, but saving it's not gonna save you when God decides that he's gonna destroy your nation or make it so you're not the prime minister anymore. What he's gonna do instead is something that you could never expect, or even if you expect it, it's you can't stop it. So it's better to take all the money you have today and be like a grasshopper and an ant. Take the money you have today and spend it on your people in a way that's just and right, but don't spend it all because you might want some for tomorrow. Don't waste it just because you have it. But if your people are in dire need and you have $100 million in offshore accounts, that's wrong, especially when it's their money that you've taken. And now you're just holding it overseas for no reason when they're starving to death. So what you can do in your place, because you want to be a government dictator that's in control of their lives, is you can take that $100 million and withdraw all of it, and then you can start logging operations to make sure they have food, uh, wood for houses, and farming operations to make sure they have food to eat. And you know as well as I do, that's going to be a profitable operation. It might cost much money initially, but it's going to be profitable every year, and they'll have more wood for houses and more food to eat. <laughs> And if you're one of those people that's like, well, what about the trees? They grow back. And if you're confused about this, go collect some tree seeds and plant them. But if you're in a third world country and your people are starving, you have no excuse if you're in control of their money. That means you might be partly to blame. And maybe what you can do is a fresh start. Break ties with the New World Order or whatever you want to call it. I don't call it that. Just break the international ties. 